when we watch a mime seemingly pull on a rope, stumble over an obstacle, or push against the sides of a transparent box, we don't struggle to recognize the implied objects. Our minds automatically construct vivid representations of them, even though they're not actually there. This phenomenon intrigued a pair of researchers, Chaz Firestone and Pat Little, who decided to take miming out of the box and bring it into the lab. Their research, published in the journal Psychological Science, could help us understand how we see objects that aren't really there. I'm Charles Blue with the Association for Psychological Science, and this is Under the Cortex. Hi, I'm Chaz Firestone. I'm an assistant professor of psychological and brain sciences at Johns Hopkins University, and I'm also the director of the Perception and Mind Laboratory, which is a group of researchers that studies how we see and think about the world around us. Hi, I'm Pat Little. I'm a graduate student in cognition and perception at New York University. There's something interesting about mimes. They are fascinating to watch, and you can sometimes really get pulled into the world they're trying to create with their hands and their bodies. And that's really a skill, but it doesn't all seem to be one-sided. There's something that's going on in the mind when we actually see people interacting with surfaces that are just implied. And you took a look at that and decided that's really curious research and you wanted to write a paper. So can you tell me generally, what did you look out for? What were you trying to discover? So we're visual perception researchers, and most of what we study involves light hitting our eyes and then our brain interpreting what that light means. So most of the time that you become aware of an object around you, it's because light from that object reached you. You know, it bounced off someone's face and hit your eyes. It bounced off an apple and hits your eyes, and you become aware of what that thing is. But there are also some situations where your brain has a kind of funny relationship with the light that hits your eyes. So for example, you might spot your neighbor behind like a slatted fence. And even though only a little bits of light from that person are, is reaching you, you become aware of the complete person. You can kind of stitch together the little snapshots that you get into a complete sort of representation of who it is that's over there. Mimes take this even further. So they make us become aware of objects that cast no light onto our eyes whatsoever. And that phenomenon is very intriguing from the perspective of a visual perception researcher. It suggests that maybe there are some kinds of phenomena that we're sort of missing out on in our field. And that's the kind of thing that Pat and I were interested in when we started working on this problem. There's something about mimes that's particularly cool because in addition to making us infer that things are there through ordinary processes like charades or interacting with something in just a funny way, but that thing actually exists, they also do this extra special kind of trick where they interact with something that doesn't exist, that's totally invisible and even imaginary, but they give us this strong sense that that thing is actually there. Like a mime leans up against a wall and seems to be supported by it or pulls on a rope or something like that. And we get this strong kind of undeniable feeling like, ah, I can see that. I feel like something's there. And that's so cool for us as perception researchers. Like, how can we see something or feel like we can see something, even though that thing doesn't actually exist? What is this magic that mimes are bringing to the table? And how can we take that thing and bring it into the lab and do science on it? And so that's kind of what, what got us interested in this in the first place. So this is more than just the brain filling in the gaps, as it tends to do with visual information. To make a movie work, it's just stacked single images, and our brain kind of stitches them together. You're looking for something that's less tied to filling in the gaps and more creating something out of whole cloth? I think that's right. The way that your brain is going to do this is by some clues that you get in the environment around you. 
So it would be one thing to just generate an object representation for no reason at all. And that's a little bit different than what's happening in the mime case. What's happening in the mime case is the person's body is moving in a way that is kind of mysterious without the presence of that object. So you see someone look like they're bumping into something or look like they're holding something in their hands. And your mind says something like, huh, it would be such an odd thing for this person to be bouncing in this way or having their body deform in this way or seeming to be weighed down the way they are if there weren't actually an object present. And so that's the kind of phenomenon that we became interested in. What does it take for your mind to infer that something in the world is behaving in a kind of anomalous enough way that there must be something I can't see that's actually causing that to happen. And what we found essentially, and that you can experience when you look at a mime, is that there are certain ways a person can behave or even just an object can act in the world that makes you realize that there's more to what's going on there than you can see directly and that there must be some other force or some other object that is causing it to behave that way. And so just like Pat said, this is a difference between, say, charades or even just me like pointing at a wall, right? I can tell you that a wall is there. I can point at it. I can uh, avoid it. But bouncing into it is a different kind of thing. It deforms my body. It has physical effects that you can see. And your mind then kind of approaches it like a detective and says, huh, what kind of thing could be making this person behave that way? Uh, I'm going to assume that there's a wall there. And that's what you experience. You experience the wall that must be there to explain the anomalous behavior of the object or person that you're looking at. Just to build on that detective analogy a little bit, one of the things that lots of areas of psychology and neuroscience sort of converged on is that the brain is constantly trying to make sense of the world. It's constantly making predictions about what's going to happen next. And one of the things that, that might be happening here is that the brain has a prediction about what things are in the world. And then that prediction is proven false by the way that a mime interacts. Like, oh no, I thought I understood what was going on here, but now this mime's leaning on this nothing. So something must be afoot. And so it then might conjecture. The, the mind will, will say, hey, there must be something here that I didn't know about before. And so I'm, I'm going to just assume, infer that there must be some invisible thing happening. And that's the, that's the effect that we, we tried to capture in our experiments. And that is the key to it. This is an experiment. So not really something you can envision. How do you actually study a miming activity in the laboratory? You didn't go out on the street and you know, grab a mime and bring it in with you and have people look at it. How did you go from, wow, this is neat, to how do you actually develop a study? The question that we were interested to ask is, in a way, you know, what is the nature of the phenomenon of appreciating a mimed object? But more specifically, is the process that your mind uses to infer the presence of that object an automatic one? Is it one that you have control over, that you kind of intend to do? Or is it more like something that happens to you? You know, as long as you look at a mime, interact with a wall, as long as you look at an object, sort of bounce off something, you will infer the presence of a surface, whether you're intending to do that or not. And so what we did in our study is instead of asking someone a question about mimes, right, we didn't ask someone, hey, what do you think the mime is doing in this situation? We made them behave in a certain way that in a sense was kind of independent of what the mime was doing. And then we looked for an influence of the mime's behavior on their performance of what you might think of as a kind of unrelated task. Uh, Pat, do you want to say what the task was? In order to get examples of a mime, we needed to, to come up with a, a way of 
of showing people video, a very specific kind of video tailored to our uh, experimental needs. And the problem, like you were saying, we can't just drag a mime into the lab and neither of us, I mean, I hate to play into the, the stereotype of, of scientists as sort of physically inept, but, but neither of us could quite capture that miming feeling um, on our own. And so we needed to generate these stimuli somehow, these videos that we would use in our experiment. And so the trick we realized was to just to take a video of us actually interacting with an actual object and then just edit out that object. So Chaz was a good sport about this and ran into a wall repeatedly for, for science so that we could take a video of that and then digitally oh, the things we do for wall. science. Exactly. Um, yeah, we had a so, pretty fun day where, where Pat brought me to the Hopkins gym and uh, we found a padded room and we set up some objects in there, like this box that I would walk into. But, you know, you really need the wall. That's really the canonical mimed object. We have all these takes. Of course, only one of them makes it into the paper, but we have many takes of me just running into a wall. And, you know, as more time has passed, I've actually wondered whether maybe some of the earlier takes were good and Pat was just trying to get his advisor to run into a wall more times than was necessary, but I'll never really know the answer. That's right. You never will know. Okay. So that's the study. What did you find out? What's new in this research that tells us something about the way people perceive the world, whether an object is there or not? So there's, there's a part of it that, that I guess we, I want to say a little bit more about, which is that, so people saw these videos of, of Chaz, our, our standing for a mime, running into a wall or stepping on a box, but their task was something unrelated. Their task was, was to re report whether some line that appeared on the screen was vertical or horizontal. And the trick was that Chaz would run into a wall and maybe they would kind of automatically get the sense that there's a wall there. And then when they had to say that there was a horizontal line, that's sort of a mismatch between what they just inferred and what they have to do. And that mismatch led to them responding slower. They didn't do as good a job detecting what the orientation of this line was. When, it, when they were influenced by this previous experience of seeing a mime that suggested a, a different kind of surface than the one they actually ended up seeing. What the work shows, in a sense, is that when we're doing stuff that's totally unrelated to perceiving mimes, we can't help but make our, our mental inferences about what kinds of objects are there anyway. The mining happens in our brains, whether we want it to or not. And so that kind of automaticity is the main takeaway from the experiment. And this really could have been otherwise. So it could have been that miming is kind of like any other form of acting, where you, as the audience member, have to be at least a little bit engaged to really pick up what's going on. But that's not what we found. What we found is that even in a situation where the subjects in our experiments should basically be motivated to completely ignore the behavior of the mime, because they quickly realize it's only getting in their way, they can't do that. They can't inhibit the inferences that their minds are making that, oh, there must be a wall there, or oh, there must be a box there. And so that's what we mean by automatic. It's essentially beyond your control. It's not like something you choose to do. It's something that happens to you. It's almost like a reflex, the way that your body sometimes behaves in ways that you don't have much control over. Your mind can do that too. And that's what we were exploring in our study. The experiment was going on, or you were having your subjects take a look at a screen and give them orientations, uh, give their perceived orientations of lines while this miming was going on in the backgrounds? Or did you prime the brain before and then do the line experiment? Were these concurrent or did you have to like do one first and then come in and do the second? The way it worked is there were many trials of this experiment. And on every trial, all they had to do was report whether a line was vertical or horizontal. But before each line appeared, Chaz would run into a wall or step on a box and imply a horizontal or vertical line. 
in a way that didn't always match up with the line that followed. So they'd see a mime doing something, totally unrelated, ignore that if you want, and yet they couldn't. And then a line would appear, and that was what they were supposed to respond to. I would just also add that in our one of our later experiments, we actually completely eliminated any temporal delay between the interaction they saw and the line that appeared. So in one of our experiments, a disk drops down and bounces off something that you can't see. And at that very same moment, a line appears in the right place for where that unseen surface should be. Sometimes that surface that appears is the one that kind of should be there given the way the ball bounced. And other times the one that appears is not the one that should be there given the way the ball bounced. And there's literally no delay at all between when the ball bounces off this invisible thing and when the visible surface appears. And even in that situation, where there's no delay, there's no time to think about it really, there's no, oh, I saw that, hmm, let me scratch my chin. Even when there's no delay at all between what the ball does and which line appears, you still get this influence of the physically implied surface that your mind is inferring on the basis of the ball's bouncing. So what does that tell us? I mean, we know now that I guess there is this background ability of the human brain to consider information that's not visible in the way it populates the universe with with objects, does that provide us insights we didn't have before? How can I take that information and say, ah, now I know a little bit better about how humans think? You know, something that I just find intriguing whenever it happens, including in this situation, is learning that my mind is doing something that I didn't know it was doing. So there are lots of things that happen in your body that are like that, right? I don't really have any control or insight into the process of digestion. It just kind of happens within me. It's kind of running in the background and I'm not, I don't have to monitor it or try to do it. But most things that your mind does, they at least don't always feel that way. We like to think that we're in control of what our minds do in a way that we're not so in control of what you know our digestive system is doing. But one of the insights from cognitive science and certainly in perception research is that actually your mind is often acting on your behalf all the time. It's running all sorts of programs in the background that you're not aware of and that you couldn't even stop if you wanted to. And seeing the world is a great example of that. When you open up your eyes and see the world, you don't first feel like you have to press like the start seeing button in your head. It just happens to you. Light hits your eyes and you see the world. And there's no sort of agent within you that gets to decide that you're going to do this or not going to do this. And so anytime we get to add something to the list, of processes that your mind is doing automatically and unconsciously and without your intent, I just like kind of get a little tickled by that. I'd find that to just be an intriguing thing. It's a way to get a kind of self-knowledge that you couldn't necessarily get just by sort of experiencing the world. You sometimes really do need the experiment to tell you that even if you were to try to ignore this kind of thing, you can't because it's just a part of who you are. And that's one thing we learn from these kinds of experiments. We learn what a person is. We learn what the software is in them that makes them who they are. And apparently, this is part of the software of the human perceptual system. And just to bring it back to something you said at the very beginning, there's kind of a two-way interaction going on when a mime is, is miming. They're doing something with their own bodies that makes us see that there's something there. But of course, the other half of that is that we're making that inference about that invisible thing that they're interacting with. And so I guess, I don't know if any individual mime is intending specifically to interact with a particular part of the human perceptual system. But somehow or another, mimes have settled on this particular kind of interaction that sort of automatically gives rise to this experience in our heads. It's kind of extra magical what they're doing. They're doing something so good 
that the human brain, through whatever process, has pre-built components for detecting the thing that they're interacting with. So they're tapping into this seemingly very basic process about how we see the world and the objects that are in it in order to give us these experiences. Now I have to know, have you spent a considerable amount of time recently actually looking at mimes and going, wow, that's really cool, or that one's really good, or that one could maybe trick me more than others could? Well, you know, I'll say that something that inspired our research was something that we could call miming, but that the person who did it themselves didn't call it that, which is there's a viral internet meme called the Invisible Box Challenge. And in this challenge, which you can look up on YouTube, uh, someone basically jumps over something with their foot in place that really makes it look like they are standing on top of or are supported by an invisible box. And speaking for myself, I find this to be extremely impressive, maybe even more impressive than some of the miming that I've seen. The people who can do this really well, which are not us, <laughs> uh, are just really talented at this. And they really make you feel like there's an object there that the person must be balancing upon. Once you start trying this for yourself, you really start to realize how great the variance is in a person's ability to compellingly mime the presence of some other object. The second you watch this viral internet meme, you kind of can't help but get out of your chair and just try this by yourself in your room. You'll probably fail, or at least uh, if you're anything like me and Pat. We had a hard time doing this. But there are some really great examples on the internet of people doing this very skillfully. I guess those who can't mime do research. <laughs> well, I get, and there goes my afternoon. I'm going to have to go on the internet and look at this and just see if I can uh, step over the invisible box. Where do you want to take this next? Did this uncover some new question? Or is there a future bit of research that will really help flesh out the initial studies that you've done? One thing that comes to mind for me is that we have this sense now that some kind of automatic processing is happening. There's something about the, the object that the mind interacts with that gets into our head. But it's not clear exactly what we're experiencing. It's not clear whether it's any more than just a surface. So when Chaz steps on an invisible box, do we see a box? Do we see anything at all? Or do we just kind of get an automatic inference that something horizontal is there? What exactly is the nature of that representation in our heads? That's something that we have yet to get to the bottom of. And I think would be really cool in order to be able to say, hey, this, like, let me just paint a picture for you. What's going on in your head when you see this invisible box challenge? That's what I would personally be most interested in pursuing next. One thing that Pat is referring to is that a challenge that faced us is, you know, we made these lines appear in our experiment. And how did we know, like, what orientation to use and how big to make the line and how thick to make it? Well, we kind of just used our own impression of what we see when we look at these videos. But for all we know, that impression is not shared by other people. And so there are some methods out there that we're thinking of exploring that basically let you tell us what you see, but without actually doing the thing that Pat sort of gestured at, which was asking you to draw a picture. There are some ways for us to try to kind of extract from your mind what you must be seeing rather than show you something and see if that matches what you're seeing. And it's possible that if we use one of these methods, we would discover, oh yeah, you see something like the line that we were showing you. But it's also possible that if we use these methods, we would realize that the kind of object representation that your mind is creating is actually quite different than just you know a little line on the screen. It might be something much richer. It also might be something more impoverished. And that's really an open question is what the exact nature and format and size and extent of the objects that we infer exist 
There's all sorts of examples in optical illusions and other little pictures that people learn about in introductory psychology classes. Lots of little ways that the mind is stitching together what kinds of objects are in the world. Decades of work have led us to the point where we, we can draw some circles on a screen and make you see a triangle in between them. We know what the building blocks are for making people see different kinds of objects, but we don't know what those building blocks are for when there are no circles. There's nothing there at all. There's just a mind interacting with something. So we don't know yet. How, how to make people see specific kinds of surfaces. We're really just getting started. Well, in the words of Marcel Marceau... <laughs> done, done. Thank you. <laughs> well, well, Chaz and Pat, uh, thank you for sharing uh, details on your research. It's very intriguing, and I appreciate your spending some time with me today. Thanks it's so much. It's great to be with you, Charles. If you enjoyed the research presented in this episode, don't miss the 2021 APS Virtual Convention, May 26th through the 27th, where psychological scientists from around the globe will be sharing their research. Special early bird registration rates are in effect until April 15th. Learn more by visiting the APS website at psychologicalscience.org.